He'd been the voice of the Breeders' Cup, appeared in commercials, and even in an episode of The Simpsons. Trevor Denman returns to the mic as the Del Mar season begins in mid-July. On his way from his Minnesota farm to Southern California, he stops by for a moment to chat with us here on In the Gate. They're in the gate! They're in the gate! In the gate! They're in the gate! It's a hit-bobbing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Sports fans in Southern California have been blessed to be entertained and informed by some of the most legendary play-by-play voices in their sports histories. Of course, the standard bearer is Vin Scully who spent more than six decades behind the mic for Dodgers baseball. Go online and find his call of the ninth inning of Sandy Koufax's perfect game in 1965. That alone is the textbook for how to be an announcer. Of course, there was Chick Hearn, the somewhat folksy voice of the highly cosmopolitan Los Angeles Lakers. He invented the now common basketball terms slam dunk, air ball, and no harm, no foul. Once Chick was certain a game would result in a Lakers win, he'd inevitably say, The light's out, the door's shut, the butter's hard, and the jello's jiggling. Of course, there was also Bob Miller, the voice of the L.A. Kings hockey team for four decades. He has a star on Hollywood Boulevard and a spot in numerous halls of fame. I attended his sportscaster camp twice when I was a teenager. Chick Hearn died in 2002 but both Vince Scully and Bob Miller retired within the past year. There is, however, still one active legendary voice in the Southern California area. That voice belongs to Trevor Denman. Zenyatta has a lot, a lot of ground to make up. Zenyatta, if she wins this, she'll be a super horse. She's starting to pick them off, though. Zenyatta going to hook to the outside. Meanwhile, it's Colonel John Summerbird in the red cap. And Zenyatta's come to the outside. Zenyatta coming, flying on the grandstand side. Gio Ponti on the inside. Summerbird is right there. This is unbelievable. Zenyatta, what a performance. One wheel. Trevor Denman started calling races the year I was born, 1971, 46 years ago. But after leaving the Santa Anita booth in 2015, he now restricts his narration to the two meets at Del Mar. The first of those, the main one, the summer one, is about to begin. What better time to welcome to Win the Gate one of the legendary voices of thoroughbred racing or any sport, ESPN alumnus, Trevor Denman. You quoted no less than Epicurus when you left Santa Anita, saying, Only with leisure can life flow in a single gentle stream. After eight or so months at home in Minnesota following the fall Del Mar meet, how do you get yourself back into the groove to call races? I'm petrified. Absolutely. First of all, i got to get off the plane and get on the freeway. That is an ordeal. Wow. You know, 
I got about a 25-mile drive to where I'm staying, and it's right on the on the five, and and then on the on another side freeway over there. That is terrifying. I I always use that analogy here where I live. The closest town is seven miles away, but it's it's very very small. There's a gas station and a little a little store, and that's it. And when I drive down there, I play the little game of unders and overs of how many cars I'll see. And the unders and overs is four. Uh, well, I never see more than four. I could do two; would probably be a little closer to the point, you know. And even then, if I go to the next town, which is Wabashaw, which is ooh, fifteen miles away, very, very, very few cars. I mean, you could literally count them. As opposed to Southern yes. California, where there's a traffic light uh, just to get on and off the highway. Oh, I have done this obviously before, but and I haven't been away for this long a period. But uh, I have done it on a three-month vacation, and it's terrifying when you get back there. Those freeways, it takes about two or three days to get back into it. I just do like 60 mile an hour in the slow lane and, <laughs> and start sweating, you know. Now, you held the track announcer position at Santa Anita for 33 years, and until you left, the track had had only four announcers since it opened in 1935. Correct. Before that announcement, how long had you been contemplating leaving the Santa Anita booth? Okay, you know, it's one of those things where everything just kind of came together uh, at once. The thought had probably been there for five, seven years. The action of actually leaving Santa Anita came upon me very suddenly. We were in the last meeting in November, and one day I was just sitting in, in, in the booth, and the time was dragging between races. It's always those midweek races that drag. I'd rather have 12 races on a Saturday with a couple of grade one races thrown in than eight on a Thursday when there's four maidens and four $10,000 claimers kind of thing. You know, I'm exaggerating, but close. And I, it just hit me, um, like they say, like a bolt of thunder, a uh, bolt of lightning. And uh, I just said, what am I doing in here? I've got a life to live. You know, I'm 63 years old. Uh, I've got to get out there and live. I, 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 uh, this is not what I want to be doing when I, w- w- on my last day. And I went home that night and just told my wife, I said, you know, I, I, I honestly think it's over. And it took probably another 24 hours, and I said, okay, that's it. Closing day, I'm out of here. Let's not do it anymore. Well, how much did Santa Anita taking over most of the race dates from the now-closed Hollywood Park, where you were not calling races, affect your decision? A contributing factor. A contributing factor, but not the contributing factor. I think my life was the number one thing. I, I decided that I need my time. I, You know, I liked Santa Anita. I never had one bad day there. Um the drive home was getting really bad. I lived 20 miles away. It was taking me anywhere between an hour and 15 minutes and an hour and a half to get home. Uh, the longer meeting was definitely a contributing factor, but the number one, 98% of it, was I needed my time. I, uh, you know, I wanted, I wanted my time for myself. I've, I'd worked for, gee, what was it now, 45 years? Yep, I'm in my 47th year now, so it was 45 years there. I said, all right, I've paid my dues. It's time. Jay Hovde, in the Daily Racing Forum, had written that when you were on your time in England at the time of the closing of Hollywood Park, that your wife and you made multiple trips to a betting shop there. Yeah. Um, why? We love, 
Well, we love it. The English racing is really good. It's it's often the jump season over there. Um, you know, I think that could be a little ambiguous where people think you sat in the betting shop all day. No, I love going to uh, Stratford-upon-Avon. That I proposed to my wife right outside of Shakespeare's house, and obviously that's in Stratford-upon-Avon. I, I have that. been there. That's love awesome. It. Absolutely love it. And there's a betting shop there called Coral's. Now, we didn't go in at 8 in the morning and come out at 5 in the afternoon. You, you handicap, which is brilliant. I love handicapping those races. And you might pick three or four races, okay? And you can go. You only have to spend, let's say, two hours in the betting shop. And then you're off. I mean, there's, there's a million, thousand things to do in that particular area. It's just it's filled with history. And you put me anywhere near history and you can't, you know, I won't leave. So I didn't, I, I spent almost every day in the betting shot but when you say it like that someone pictures you being you know one of the old pikers that's just there from the first race to the last race and that that's not what it was i was there like two hours a day say. did anybody recognize you oh thank goodness no oh there were a couple of times it got a little close they wouldn't know me by looks but they knew by talking and when they started getting a little too close, I would just say, man, I have to go now because I really <laughs> didn't want them to. I much prefer just being one of the lads kind of thing, you know. Well, you not being recognized in a place like that reminds me of a story that the great uh, Formula One driver Michael Schumacher tells of going to the Richard Petty Driving School at Texas Motor Speedway in Fort Worth yes. and nobody recognizing him. Seven-time Formula One champion, and nobody there paid attention go. to him at all. There you go. Well, you know, really, the English know very, very, very little about American racing. For one, there's the time factor. The, the betting shops stay open till 10, but after, after 6 o'clock, there's only two or three people in there. So they don't see much American racing, and I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with the English betting shops, but there's probably five different tracks going at the same time. And when the American tracks come on, they're down in the bottom, and there's no sound. You can just see the horses running around. So they, the, what I'm saying is the, the importance of the, of the American racing in England is very low. Ferdinand's got his ears pricked and going beautifully under Gil Shoemaker on the outside. Broadbrush coming to take him on. Inside promise and snow chief at the rail. But it's Ferdinand and Broadbrush coming to the wire together in the big gap. Angel Cadero on the outside with Broadbrush. Bill Shoemaker and Ferdinand. Ferdinand for Broadbrush. Just the wire. How did you develop your distinctive style for calling races? Oh, my goodness, that goes back a long way. You know, I, I, I started calling races when I was about 14 years old, not, not professionally, but into a tape recorder. And in those days, you must remember, I was born in South Africa in 1952. We never had television until 1976. So I was 24-year-old before South Africa even got a television. Our radio coverage was extremely limited. We had like three channels, and uh, they were very dour. Most of them were political channels. Our sporting event came on 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and we went from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock. We had, we had a thing called Sports Roundup where, they were, where you could do sport. So getting to the bottom line, we were very isolated. We had English race calls. We'd get all the English, they weren't called grade one in those days, but let's say the English grade one races, Peter O'Sullivan would, would mostly be the guy and Peter Bromley. And then we would get the Australians every now and again, the, the Melbourne Cup, and that a few Austra Americans I never heard until I came to this country in 70, well, what was that, 76 as well, I think. Yes. 
um, and then there was a guy called Bill Collins. He's Australian. He's passed now, but he was the guy I basically based myself on. But as you can tell, we had our own announcers in South Africa. There were a couple of very, very good announcers there. We had the English and we had the Australians, and it's a, a little bit stolen from each one of them. So it, it's a hodgepodge call it a cocktail, if you like, of, of those three countries. I'm sure you know Vic Stauffer, who called the races yes. at Hollywood Park for over a decade before it closed, now calls Oaklawn Park. And he was a guest recently on the Pollock Report podcast, and Vic Stauffer, the goof on the roof, said that when <laughs> Durkin's, Tom Durkin started calling races, he was the first to understand that he was speaking largely to an audience watching on TV or a simulcast as compared with the on-track audience in the grandstand. And Vic said, when you talk to a TV listener, you don't have to have this grandiose, big, booming style. You can act like you're talking to one person. How and when did your style evolve from, say, the grandstand audience of your predecessors to the TV simulcast audience? Yes, well, I've gone 360 degrees. Again, I get back to my early days. I started calling when I was 18. That was 1971, actually. And our tracks are huge. You know, they're almost two miles in circumference and no television, absolutely nothing. So, and yet the fields, I mean, 20 was like an eight-horse field in America. They were big fields. So it was a totally, totally different style of calling. I mean, you were the people's eyes. And then when television came along, you know, back I look back on those 80s and that those great horses, Ali Sheba, Ferdinand, Sunday Silence. My goodness, the TV coverage, you could hardly see them. <laughs> you go back and look at those. So although we had the you know, good television coverage, the, the images were so small, you couldn't see properly. Then as television got better... Uh, so your style would kind of change. And then when they brought in this high definition, this modern TV, I can say, what, the last four years? Oh, my goodness. It's just, like, phenomenally close. So I would have to say, if you were starting out as an announcer, as a young announcer, you would call it straight off the television. And I've tried to do a few races off the television, but, you know, that old saying, hard to teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> And I just am not comfortable with it. If it's raining, which last year at Del Mar, funny enough, it did, I have to because there's no cover at Del Mar. You get soaked if it rains because it never rains. So I pulled back to the back of the booth, and I was calling some races from television, and I could do it. But, it, wow, after 45 years, it, it goes against the grain, you know. But to answer your question, yes, television has changed announcing. We're going to take a short break here on In The Gate, but when we come back, how the best thing you can do to become a track announcer is read? Don't go away. Welcome back to In The Gate. Trevor Denman continues with us. We were talking about Tom Durkin before. I took his seminar... He did a little seminar on calling races, and you can actually still find that on YouTube by searching Race Call College. And his number one mantra for being a good announcer was read. Now, I'll go out on a limb and say you read just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but how does reading really help you do your job? It's descriptive. It helps you in description, and it helps you with vocabulary. Yes, it, now it's fallen into place, yes. Now, you've said that Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Sagan are big ones for you. How do you determine what you read? Um, let me put it this way. They mostly go into one another. You know, if, if I had to go through all the guys 
let's go back to the beginning, Pythagoras was, you know, absolutely phenomenal. I mean, one of the cleverest men in history. I mean, those guys were phenomenal. They, they, they calculated the equator to within 23 miles of what it actually is. He knew about atoms. I mean, how would you know about atoms if you don't have what we have today? Um, and they sprinkled a lot with very, very good people, largely, largely vegetarians, because that means ahimsa, which means no, they don't harm anything. Obviously, he was. Epicurus was another one that was in there that I spoke about. Uh, if you went to Galileo, I mean, what a man, not a vegetarian, but what a man. Oh, my goodness. And to put up what he did, I mean, they were threatening his life, and he, he stood, still was stood at, and he basically stuck to his guns where they had to back down and give him house arrest where, where they should have murdered him. But what a great man. Leonardo da Vinci, one of the greatest of all time. I mean, to this day, maybe the smartest man we've ever had. He's up there with Einstein and them. Uh, Thomas Paine, gosh, what he did for, for America, for England, for the French Revolution. I mean, phenomenal man. Percy Bysshe Shelley, absolutely. You read about him. He was for women's rights. He was for education. He was anti-slavery. To that, to us, it seems like nothing. But try it back in his day, you know. He was ostracized. He was kicked out of England. He had to, he had to go and live in, in a, he died at 29 years old in Italy. Uh, these, these guys have such phenomenal points. Nelson Mandela, you could go to Leo Tolstoy. Oh, my goodness, what a person, you know. Um, and, and, and coming more into Mahatma Gandhi. I mean, how do you do better than Mahatma Gandhi? So, uh, to answer your question, a few things. They did magnificent things. They were all extremely brave men. Giordano Bruno, I mean, gosh, they killed him such a brutal, brutal way, and he stuck to his guns. He said he was right. I mean, these boys had guts. Um, non-harm is, is right up there with them. You know, I could never idolize uh, a, a person who, who practiced belligerence. So, yeah, I just I can't get into that. Um, and the modern guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson, the question was actually asked, who's your like hero of today? And of today, he would have to be up there. Does he rank with those other people I've just been speaking about? No, not yet. But uh, who's alive today? He's right up there with them. And Carl Sagan, I mean, gosh, what a fantastic person! You won't, you won't get much better than him. You got the Richard Dawkins, the Hitchens, you know, they're 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 fantastically clever people, but they don't fit some of my criteria, as in they're not particularly uh, into pacifism. You were telling me off the air that you broke your leg recently. How did you break your leg? Yeah, fell off the back of a trailer, man. Just it's one of those things, I you know. Nine o'clock in the morning, I wasn't drunk, I wasn't fooling around, I wasn't trying to impress anybody, I just slipped and fell. Broke my leg in three places, one of them really bad. When did this happen? Uh, 17th of March. So, it's, you know, they say it takes three months, and the 17th of July is like right now, you know, it's on the brink of, of being able to walk on it, but I just can't. Well, fortunately, it didn't affect your voice. What is life like on that 500-acre farm in Kellogg, Minnesota, <laughs> population 450. Hey, would, it, would a Dillick be okay? That's about as close as I can come to it. You're not going to get a better place on planet Earth than here. I always tell my wife, I say that even Bill Gates couldn't get a better place than this. I'm, they, they're obviously as good, but this is just magnificent. Man, we look down a valley, and it's non-ending. Uh, I believe you can see for 70 miles is what the local law says. But you can just see forever across the Mississippi River and into Wisconsin. And I'm way up on a hill, so we got just the most magnificent view. 
animals all over the place. Gosh, they're they're all our friends out here. You know, <laughs> we almost hand feed them. And there's rabbits, there's uh, hedgehogs, there's um, uh, woodchucks, there's squirrels, there's gophers, there's coyotes, there's foxes, there's deer, obviously. You know, that's just fantastic. Absolutely great. How does a guy from South Africa wind up in Minnesota? That's the weirdest thing. You know, I lived 31 years in Africa. I lived 32 years in California, and now I'm going to live my last 30 years in Minnesota. You won't get much more of a juxtaposition than that, will you? Africa, California, to the freezes of Minnesota. It basically goes back to my wife, Robin. She's, she was brought up in uh, the Minneapolis area, so she was familiar with Minnesota. And we were looking for a place to move to. This was 20 years ago, just to have it as a, you know, I never worked Hollywood Park, so whenever they ran, I would come out here. And the southern part of Minnesota is just fantastic. The northern part, up by the Canadian border, is a little rural. It's, it's, it's pretty flat. There's not much vegetation at all. It's, it's pretty bland. But the southern parts, you know, southeastern Minnesota, wow, is it gorgeous. I guess the phrase you used was counting dollars versus counting stars. <laughs> When I when I so-called retired, obviously I still do Del Mar. Yeah, I said I've given up counting dollars. I'm now counting the stars. You want to see the nights out here? I mean, there's not a light. The nearest farmer is a, is a mile away, but he's just over the hill, so you can't see him. You can see the very very top of his silo. So the point being made is it is pitch black, and there are stars like wow, you just can't believe. I mean, I want to say billions. You know, there's hundreds of millions of them. Well, there's as many as you want to see. And you see all these stars with a naked eye, then you get the binoculars out and you take a look at them, and oh my goodness, there's a thousand more, you know, a thousand times more, because you can see so more. I guess binoculars are a very important part of your business and personal life, aren't they? I didn't mean it that way, but yeah, I guess it was. Um, (laughs) I just meant that there are just so many stars up there, and the eye can only see so many, you know. How much reading have you been able to do on the farm? Quite a lot, um, uh, a, a lot. Uh, you know, I, I, the new thing now is these teaching uh, CDs that they're not CDs, are DVDs, and you put it in, and it's a lecturer, and he lectures you for a half hour. And oh my goodness, it's like reading a book, but uh, they much more succinct. You get it done much quicker. And these are all professors at universities, so whatever they say. Uh, you can take to the bank. You know that it's true. Right now, I'm just looking at them doing the conquest of the Americas, European history and European lives, and a thing called human beings, which is all about how we act and why we act that way. So reading uh, has been huge for me. But the last maybe five years, I've taken a lot to this teaching company, and my books are still in there. Right now, I've got uh, the history of the Jesuits, which is just absolutely fascinating the idiot by by dostoevsky very depressing book but i'm trying to get to the end it's very good rereading parts of mein kampf the book called we was written by we written by a russian which wow they stole that to make uh, uh 1984 there's absolutely no doubt about it wow it's almost like plagiarized so i had to read that i don't think many people are familiar with them the russian author has got such a, 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 a name I couldn't pronounce it if I tried and then a thing called the Hermetica which goes back to ancient beliefs I'm really really into that you know the Essenes the Hermetica the church fathers falls into that category and um, 
oh, there's one other one that I'm not thinking of. You always, and then I'm driving down the road, and I think, oh, gosh, now I know it, but I can't think now that I'm live. <laughs> but that kind of thing is what, what I really like to get into. You're reading Mein Kampf? Yes, parts of it, not cover to cover. Well, I, basically it's because, um, and I, I'm, not, I'm not pro or anti anything, I'm just reading what they say, and the, I'm trying to get into the mindset of the Germans in the 20s when, when he wrote the book in the 30s, you know, before everything happened. Because it's extremely interesting that the Germans are extremely intelligent people. And how they fell for something like that, you know, how they allowed that to happen. I know the first time he went for, uh, to, to run in politics, he won like 8% of the vote. So they didn't take to him in the beginning. Then it was 30% and then basically he manipulated his way into power. But my whole thing for doing that is to see the, the, the mindset of the German people who are extremely intelligent, how they let that happen. I know, uh, switching topics here, I know we were talking about vegetarian and such that animal welfare has been a big cause for you during your careers how far has the movement come since you started wow absolutely phenomenal i've been vegetarian now for probably 30 years and back in those days it was tough i mean you were always almost looked down upon when you went into a restaurant and requested something and meat of non-meat products are extremely hard to come by uh, you know, all the, the ladies' cosmetics was animal tested. I just loved it. I'll tell you in one sentence how far it's come. I go into stores and I like to see if I'm just killing time or whatever. Read the, read the content of the bottles and make sure they're not uh, tested on animals. And these days, there no animal parts are used. And I picked up this one bottle and I just, the, the, the title on it said, Not Tested on Animals. Duh. <laughs> as in who would you know <laughs> so it's come it's come so far in the last 30 years i'm just so so happy with that and the young people are are, are changed it's not vegetarian as vegetarianism it's a, it's a matter of uh, ethics you know three words we could all live by just don't kill it's so easy but you know you're trying to change the mindset i know upton sinclair when he wrote that book uh was slaughterhouse was it way back yeah slaughterhouse and was. it was all about the, the, the atrocities of, of 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 how the slaughterhouses worked and he said i aimed for their hearts and i hit their stomach meaning he was hoping i would hit their hearts and they'd say wow this is disgusting we can't do this anymore but they all said, whoa, the meat's filthy, the meat's filthy. I can't believe what's going on in the slaughterhouses. <laughs> he aimed for their hearts and hit their stomach. You've also, I believe, been very outspoken about riders abusing the whip. Yes. Uh, what yes. progress have you seen in that area? Phenomenal, phenomenal. Wow, I did have a rude awakening when I came here back in 1983. The whip use here was just absolutely diabolical compared to the South Africans, the Irish, the English, the French, the Australians. Wow, these boys were really, really heavy. You know that one thing I always say, uh, Peter O'Sullivan, the, the, the English announcer, came to New York and he watched the first few races and he said, this is animal cruelty. This, this cannot be. I mean, this is diabolical. And he went into the stewards and there was a steward sitting back swinging on his chair and he said, can I ask you a question? And the guy said, yes. And he said, do you guys have any problems with your jockeys whipping? And he thought for a few seconds and he said, nah, our boys were pretty good. <laughs> you can see where he was coming from. But it's changed dramatically. I mean, you just go watch now Joel Rosario 
Gary Stevens. I'm going to leave some of the guys' names out. I know, but you know what, what I mean. All the top, Rafael Bejarano. Oh my goodness, they barely pulled a stick. Even Mike Smith was a little stick happy as an apprentice, but now, oh my goodness, you know, they pull a stick when they absolutely have to. And it's it's three, four, five maximum. When I first came here, oh my goodness, thirty was the average. Forty was acceptable. So something had to be done. I don't say I changed it, but I said. Trevor Denman's voice has appeared in a number of different places in pop culture. Not too surprising, considering he's been based within a few furlongs of the movie capital of America. Movies, most notably the 1989 film Let It Ride with Richard Dreyfuss, and an episode of The Simpsons. What is it like Uh, when you see those moments flash by on TV from time to time? The the Let It Ride was just the greatest. I mean, what a good movie. Most racing movies are, you know, really trash. I mean, they they don't depict reality at all. But that was one of the funniest movies I've seen, that Richard Dreyfus, when they're carrying him, arresting him and carrying him away, and he's trying to see if he's also one or not. <laughs> that was fantastic. A true story there was uh, Ed Koch was the director, and he was huge into racing. And he said, come and do this. I said, sure. And I forget the exact time, but let's say, he said, it'll take about three hours. I said, okay, fine. No problem. It took six hours to finish. I mean, you couldn't talk by the end of the day, you know, and he just walked in, he threw a check down. I looked at it. It was a double check. (laughs) So he was a gentleman. We had a lot of fun doing it as well. (laughs) He said, uh, Tell, tell them uh, Mel Studi report to the jockey's room. I said, you know, you're not allowed to use uh, real people's names without their consent. He said, cause, I said, because they can sue you. He said, Mel Studi, sue me. Like, <laughs> you know, they've known each other for like 50 years. You know? <laughs> he said, just call Mel Studi to the jockey's room. <laughs> and the Simpsons were just, oh, my goodness, the nicest people. You know, you generally don't like that, that, that Hollywood scene. The huge egos. Um, they're they're not very nice people as a whole. Obviously, there's nice people in there, but the Simpsons. Oh my God, they made me feel like you know I was the star of the show, and they were just the nicest people in the world. And the funniest thing there was, um, I went in to do the script and started reading, and lo and behold, it was all about whipping. I said, "If you guys like, do you know what's going on?" They said, "Why?" And it finished up. The guy had picked up on that, whoever wrote it, totally on his own. Had nothing to do with me. Now, I mean, that's a huge coincidence. But that was a great, great, great uh, day that I spent with those guys. Wow, best guys under the sun. They were so good. It's kind of always the way. The guys who are great and are successful, they don't have an ego problem. You know, <laughs> It's the little guys that are wannabes that have the problem. Del Mar is back and with it, the return of the great Trevor Denman. Thank you so much for a few minutes. Heal up and continued success. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Our thanks once again to Trevor Denman. We may never know who originated the repeated aphorism that if you're not cheating, then you ain't even trying. In sports, we've sometimes tended to romanticize cheating, be it Gaylord Perry or Bill Belichick's lying. 
But cheating by using chemicals to enhance athletic performance has always been cast as patently unfair. Systematic drug use and the inevitable cover-up erode the public's trust beyond repair. So what happened in Pennsylvania, where a trainer ordered a vet to administer illegal race day meds, is really very damaging to the sport's integrity and even attracts the attention of the feds. It's hard to believe this fractured sport, whose rules are made by states, can't find a national solution to this mess. It need not be governmental at all, just a group with vested power to enforce drug rules this business must address. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.